Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, a podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics and talks about issues related to tax news. I'm your host, Omid Farouzi, staff attorney at Philadelphia Legal Assistance Taxpayer Support Clinic. This is your same favorite podcast previously hosted by William Schmidt, but now Mr. Schmidt has gone to the IRS Office of Chief Counsel in Kansas City, and he generously asked me to take over this podcast as the new host. And some of you out there who are listening may know me from the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Listserv and various conferences, but for those who don't know me and for everyone who's listening, my name is Omid Farouzi. I'm a staff attorney at Philadelphia Legal Assistance at our Taxpayer Support Clinic, which is our low-income taxpayer clinic. I've been an attorney there since 2018. I started at PLA as a Christine Brunswick ABA Tax Section Public Service Fellow. The fellowship allowed me to start there focusing on the issue of worker misclassification. And thankfully, after two years of that fellowship, I was able to stay on as a staff attorney in our tax unit. I should put in a plug here to say that the Brunswick Fellowship is definitely a fantastic opportunity for young tax lawyers who want to get involved in public service. So please go to the ABA Tax Section website and find out more about that if you are interested in that fellowship. I'm especially grateful to William Schmidt for giving me the privilege and opportunity of hosting this podcast, and I'm very excited to introduce to you today the first episode that I will be hosting, because our first episode is an interview that I did with Aaron Collins, the National Taxpayer Advocate. We recorded this episode in Phoenix at the annual Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Conference on December 8th, 2022. Now, since we last spoke, Aaron Collins and I, that is, President Biden signed into law the omnibus bill in late December 2022. That law increased the maximum LITC grant from 100000 to 200000 This is a topic that Aaron Collins and I discussed in this interview, as you will hear. Since Aaron Collins and I spoke as well, we've also started to slowly see the effects of the $80 billion in additional funding that the IRS received through the Inflation Reduction Act. At least 5,000 new employees have been hired, and call response times have dramatically improved at the IRS. In fact, we heard recently from the Assistant Secretary for Tax Policy at the Department of Treasury that we've gone from 15% of calls answered in 2021 at the IRS by live agents to now 89% of calls answered by live agents. So, of course, as tax practitioners, we feel this because this is something that affects our clients, affects taxpayers. We know how difficult of the last couple of years it has been for taxpayers. And in fact, since this interview with Erin Collins took place, she released her annual NTA report to Congress. In that report, she identified several most serious problems at the IRS, including these phone issues where you've got a lot of calls that went unanswered, a lot of processing backlogs, the complexity of the tax code, online account issues, return preparer oversight, and other problems that she identified. She also issued several recommendations to address these problems that included things like minimum competency standards for return preparers, expanding tax court jurisdiction, and further protecting taxpayer rights. 
We'll put the link to this report in the show notes as well so people can check it out at their own leisure. And now here is our interview from December 8th, 2022 with Aaron Collins at the LITC conference in Phoenix. Ms. Collins, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining. And we're going to discuss various issues that are affecting tax practitioners right now, uh, including uh, challenges with uh, getting folks on the phone, uh, the backlog at the IRS, notices that people are getting, and this upcoming filing season since we're recording this on December 8th. And so we're a little bit over a month away from the 2022 tax year filing season. Uh, So, Ms. Collins, uh, here at this conference, a lot of people have expressed frustration with how difficult it has been to get folks on the phone at Practitioner Priority Service. And it often feels like there is no good time or way to get through to people. They have, of course, added this feature where they are trying to prevent robots or uh, uh, certain accounts from trying to get through. Um, but that still hasn't seemed to make it uh, more uh, efficient or accessible. How is your office helping to address this and what can you share about uh, your efforts to try and get people uh, on the phones and being able to have conversations with people at PPS? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges I think taxpayers are facing is the telephones. Um, and it's, it's sort of a circular process. The more problems taxpayers are having, so for example, um, status of their refunds, uh, identity theft issues, other types of things, the higher volume calls go up. We only have, IRS only has a finite amount of folks to answer the phones. So if we're dealing with a typical year, you're going to have more phone calls coming in than you're going to have available customer service representative. That's been the biggest problem the IRS has had the last couple of years. They are in the process of hiring more customer service representatives for the next filing season. But in my opinion, until we get rid of the problems, you're still going to have difficulties getting through to a customer service representative. So I think what the IRS needs to do is clear out the backlog, clear out the challenges, and then the phone line, the volume will go down and we'll be able to have better service for practitioners. But until I see the problems getting fixed, I just don't see that we're going to be at the high level that we would all like the phone service to be at. And how can they clear that backlog? Is the additional funding in the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of getting more folks hired, is that a key part of clearing that backlog? Yeah, I think on the short-term basis, it's gonna take employees, whether that be um, employees that they reassign from other parts of the IRS, or whether or not that's hiring new people. But as you know, practitioners are well aware, you, you just don't jump into tax and tomorrow you're, you're an expert. So they're gonna have to train these folks, and that's still a period of time to train the folks, get them online. And the people who are training are the current customer service representatives. So you have to pull the people offline to train the new people, get them up to speed. So I think the IRS's goal is by the time, I think President's Weekend is where they see sort of the high volume that kicks in. They're trying to have as many people back on the phones by that date. The other thing I did not appreciate before um, working um, in this position is I never thought of the customer service representative as wearing multiple hats. So not only do they answer the phone and try and assist taxpayers, but they are the ones processing paper. So any correspondence that you send in via paper goes to the customer service representative. Amended returns goes to the customer service representatives. So the higher the call volume, the less paper that they're processing. So it's been a real challenge juggling 
Do you focus on the paper? Do you focus on the phone? Or do you focus on both? So I've been pushing to have more people get the paper behind us so next filing season, they'll free them up for the telephones. But it's, it's a very difficult juggling act for the IRS to get both the phone service down and the paper processing down. So this, the, there are two questions that come to mind here, and I want to get them out here before I forget. Uh, number one, when we last spoke, virtually that was early in 2022, uh, at the APA virtual conference in, in January, I believe that was, you had mentioned that one challenge was the fact that a lot of people were going to the private sector for higher paying jobs, but that President Biden's executive order raising the minimum wage for federal contractors to $15 an hour, that that would be helpful, but it would still be a challenge. Do you, what is the status of that in terms of uh, now having more funding for the Inflation Reduction Act or these jobs that are going to be competitive with the private sector? And the, the second question is related to that paper issue. Yesterday we heard about how they're going to have systems where they're going to be able to digitally scan these paper returns and that that should clear up the backlog. Can you provide more detail on that possibly? So I think first, uh, if you want to address the question about uh, being competitive with pay, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, Everyone thinks they, they should earn more pay than they do, so um, competitive is sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think we are a little bit more competitive. I think the IRS does offer other benefits that other companies do not, so um, the really challenge is how do we entice people to come in? Why do we believe that the IRS and working for the IRS is a good job? So I do think the key difference for IRS versus other um, agencies at the same pay is here you have an opportunity to keep progressing. Um, you know, I, I use Ken Corbin as an example. He's currently the commissioner of W&I. Well, he started, I think, as a GS3 in the clerk room, um, you know, at the beginning of his career. Fast forward X number of years, he's now the commissioner of W&I. That is a very important position within the IRS. So, you know, I think we have to explain to people that this is a situation where it could be a long-term career, and it's, it has a lot of good opportunities. So I think that helps us be a little bit more competitive. Um, on the paper, um, I, you know, as well as a lot of other outside stakeholders, have been pushing the IRS to, as I say, get in the 21st century. Um, scanning, I think, is key. Unless Congress mandates electronic filing for all, and I don't believe they will, and I don't recommend that they do, we have a large percentage of our population that are either uncomfortable with electronic filing, do not have access, um, you may not have broadband. Um, but So I don't believe we should be forcing people, but we should be making it easier for those who can e-file. Um, IRS has a number of its own forms that's not compatible with e-filing. So with this additional funding, if they can correct some of the challenges that people are facing that want to e-file, again, that'll reduce the volume. But even still, with a reduced volume, let's say you can get it down. Last year, I think it was about $17 million. Last number I saw on IRS side is we're between 13 and 14 million, 1040s this year. So it has decreased, which is good. But even if you get it down to 10 million, that's a lot of pieces of paper. So by scanning them on the front end and getting them into the system as if it was an e-file return, everything else could be done through automation. And that's really important. IRS is not as far along as I would like. I think they're looking at possibly starting a percentage uh, in the spring or summer of these returns um, with the goal of by next filing season, so in the year 2024, being up to more, 
I guess, full speed of, of getting as many of those returns in as possible. So we're still going to have some challenges the next filing season, but I think it's going to be substantially less than the last two years. So, I mean, the fact that it would be substantially less than the last two years is a hopeful a hopeful thing. I mean, well, I was going to say, unfortunately, that is a low bar. <laughs> so the fact that we're going to accomplish that, you know, it might not be a great accomplishment. But um, I am optimistic with the additional funding that it, we, we, the IRS, are going to focus a lot on both service and IT. And those are things they can do right out of the box. Um, we're not going to see an immediate change tomorrow because, again, as you work on IT, it's, it's a little bit longer term, um, but I think within the next one to two filing seasons, the IRS is going to be in a different place than they have been the last two years. Well, let's hope for, for the sake of everybody, for the sake of taxpayers and for tax practitioners who are helping those taxpayers. Right now, in terms of the backlog, do you know uh, off the top of your head how many unprocessed tax returns there are, or for at least for one specific tax year, like 2020 or 2021, how many unprocessed returns so are there? The- The previous year returns should have been processed unless there's a problem with that particular return. Um, Where the IRS currently is, and you know, we're usually a couple weeks behind, so the data we have is early November timeframe of this year. Um, On the 1040s, they were down in the 2 million-ish range. Um, On business returns, maybe 4 million range. But again, we also shouldn't forget what I call suspended returns. Those are if the return was um, rejected for a particular reason, if it's unpostable. Um, So, for example, you could have a situation where you filed um, an S-corporation election, and then you file the return. Well, the election wasn't processed, so they're going to bounce the return because you don't have a valid election in. So returns such as that are still sitting in the system. There are about 6 million of those returns that are still in the system that IRS needs to deal with. The other challenge the IRS has is correspondence. There's probably still four to five million pieces of correspondence that are sitting with IRS to be processed, and then you have amended returns. Um, they are slowly getting that number down, but it's still, I think at this point, give or take a million and a half of amended returns. So when you talk about unprocessed returns, it kind of is how do you define mm-hmm. the word unprocessed? But if you add them all up together, you're probably anywhere from the 14 to 15 million dollar range, which is still a substantial number, but it is less than the last two years. So in terms of some of these kinds of returns, you know, one example that comes to mind is people who, you know, somebody else has claimed their child. And so then when they try to claim their child, they're rejected for e-filing. Yep. So they end up having to file by paper. Is there any way to reconcile that, do you foresee in the future, to try and make it so that they can still electronically file so that the whole case can be process faster? So those are discussions that we've had since the beginning of the challenges. Um, you know, do you take those returns in and then assign them out to the unit to work? Or is that a, a challenge because is that a valid return? So once they accept it, it, it's now an issue. So there's a lot of people looking at that. I think that is something the IRS is seriously considering, which I personally think would be a good thing. Um, so those are kind of the creative ways IRS is trying to look at when I call e-filing barriers. If we could remove the barriers for a percentage, whether that be one million, five million, I don't know what the number is, but if we were able to get them into the system and then correct them, it would make the front end processing a lot easier. So in terms of electronic capabilities and, and forms that we want to see uh, people be able to e-file, 
I've often thought that it would be helpful if people could e-file Form SS8 to challenge their misclassification, identity theft affidavits, tax repair misconduct forms. And there seem to be a whole range of forms like this that still you have to file by paper, which only creates more of a backlog for the IRS. Uh, do you know if those are some specific forms that there have been discussions about making them electronically fileable? I, I will be very Pollyanna at the moment. Uh, there is nothing that's not being discussed. Um, we are truly looking at every possible form. Um, you know, one of the things that we internally in TAS um, and even within the IRS, we talk about tax administration nirvana. You know, what would tax administration look like in a perfect world? Um, I am a very big believer on what I call self-help. If I, I would speculate that a large percentage of the population, and most of those will be practitioners, would prefer to self-help. Let me get into an online account. Let me get into a tax pro account and see all my clients' data. I can see the transcripts. I can see, I would like to see all the notices, the letters, correspondence that are issued to a taxpayer in their account. Mm -hmm. I would like to respond through an online account so I don't have to send that piece of paper. Um, I'd like to have access. I, I would even like to say, for example, the W-2s and 1099s, have it in a format that you can download it into whatever software that you have. I also like to see the state information. IRS gets the entire W-2. Maybe they should put the state and local information on their transcript as well because I guess when people file the return, they're both doing federal and state at the same time. So maybe that would help with the accuracy of the state returns. So there's a lot of really great discussions um, I think my biggest concern is prioritizing and time. Uh, sometimes I'm a little impatient and I would like everything tomorrow. Uh, but I do think that they are really looking outside the box of where they have been because of the additional funding. We now have that opportunity. Another element of the Inflation Reduction Act was, I believe there was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think $18 billion or something like that. There, were, there was a pot of money in there to study the possibility of a public option direct filing system that everybody could use. Uh, what are the discussions regarding that right now? Is there a possibility that's something that could be up and running for this upcoming tax filing season? So um, I have not personally been involved in that. I, I think it was about 15 million, but um, I think what the IRS is looking at is um, estimating what their capabilities are. Can they do um, a, a form of a filing, whether it be sort of a question and answer type thing, what is your name, what is your address, you type it in and it, it drops into, um, in essence, a return. Uh, that is, that's what I believe they're looking at is, do they have the capabilities, and if so, what returns are they going to tackle? So for example, are you going to do a 1040, are you going to do a Schedule C? Are you going to do every schedule? Um, are you going to do a partnership return, a corporate return? So I suspect they're going to start small on the 1040 range um, and come back to Congress and say, this is what we're capable or not capable of doing. So uh, I guess we're all going to be waiting with bated breath. I think the initial response is sometime in April. Um, and then you get into the whole question of, should the IRS be preparing returns? Um, or should they just give them access to in essence fill in a return so that they can e-file it quicker at no cost. Um, I think all of us agree that no cost is good for taxpayers, but I also think that they should have options. Um, not everyone would be comfortable using the IRS software. 
and in which case they should have an option to go use whatever software they want. Uh, but at the end of the day, e-file, e-file, e-file. So uh, whatever the IRS can do and whatever the outside companies can do, the software companies, it's really important that we have that ability at no cost uh, for taxpayers. So sticking on this topic of the Inflation Reduction Act, actually, they there was a pledge from Secretary Yellen that none of this additional money would be used to increase audits on people who make below $400,000 a year. Is that a pledge that you're seeking to hold the IRS to? Is this something that you can provide assurance that there won't be an increase in audits on low-income people as a consequence of this funding? Well, fortunately, I don't have that power, <laughs> but thank you for giving it to me. Um, my biggest concern on this whole discussion of the 400000 is, you know, A, I think, number one, we all want a fair and equitable system, and we may all define that a little bit differently. But my concern is this has been a hot topic in the press, um, and I know on the Hill and others. Um, what I'm hearing it being translated to is the message is getting lost. What I'm hearing practitioners um, and uh, CPAs and enrolled agents hearing that the taxpayers are hearing, there will be no audits under 400000 which I think is a terrible message for tax administration. Um, I don't know the actual percentage, but I think it's a high 90%, maybe 95 98% of taxpayers are under 400000 So if taxpayers believe there's no audits, um, I I think that's ripe for problems. So I'm more concerned it's the message is getting lost when it gets out to taxpayers themselves um, that they're thinking creatively that I should stay under 400,000, which is a bad message. Um, I I do think the challenge of audits is I, you know, as the NTA, I represent all taxpayers. We're the voice of everyone. Um, We're also the voice of honest taxpayers. And I think the challenge is if honest taxpayers believe that the dishonest people are not being audited, where's their incentive to continue to be honest? And I think that's a real challenge and a real tension in the system. Uh, we want fair audits. We don't. I don't want a high percentage of audits. But what is that magic sweet spot? I don't know. Um, but I do think people have to feel that the system is being administered fairly, and that includes looking at people who may be fudging a little bit on those returns. So it's, it's a real difficult question to answer. But I, I do want to stay on this, actually, because we know that ProPublica and other uh, uh, accounts have shown that poor people are being audited now at higher rates than rich people. And we know, too, that there has been a lot of focus uh, on the Hill in the last 10 to 12 years on supposed cheating uh, in EITC and erroneous EITC. It's been something that's been of great concern to some folks on the Hill. And this has come at the expense of auditing of high earners and big businesses. Of course, that was the whole ostensible premise for this additional funding in the Inflation Reduction Act. And uh, we know that you know a lot of these wealthier individuals, they have access to high-powered counsel, Of course, that's where we step in as low-income taxpayer clinics to represent low-income folks if people can find us. Uh, And and we often, you know, we've been at this $100,000 level for a long time, uh, since 1998, I believe. Doesn't doesn't that, that, this seeming discrepancy where you have folks who are being 
targeted, uh, who are disproportionately impacted, low-income people are. Chuck Reddick himself said basically that it was easier to target uh, low-income people to audit low-income people. Doesn't that concern you? Well, what concerns me is so far, you use the example of EITC audits, so the Earned Income Tax Credits. IRS audits about 1% of those returns currently. You can have a debate, is 1% an appropriate number, too high, too low? Um, but what's disconcerting is that it's easier to do a correspondence audit or what they call an AUR, automated underreported audit, because it's pretty much all by a computer. Um, they send out letters, the letters go back and forth, and you have some human interaction. So that, I think, is the challenge the IRS has is those audits are easy to do. If you're auditing a large corporation or high net worth individual, you need to have agents who are trained, have the experience, and they take substantially longer. So it, it is a real challenge in our system, and I think that's what Congress was trying to fix, was providing the $46 billion, which is a large chunk of change, um, towards doing the high net worth individuals. Uh, and I think that is what the intention of the money is. There's a question of can they use it, and there's a whole discussion of historic rates. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's defined that. Um, it's not in the legislation that they can't use it for anyone under 400000 but that is what the Secretary of Treasury and the former commissioner were basically saying, on behalf of the IRS, this is what their intention is. Now, in terms of auditing of low-income people, often when low-income people are audited, as you know, of course, not only do they try and come to a low-income taxpayer clinic, but often they find themselves accessing their nearest TAS office and trying to get their case moving through TAS. But as you've written about on the NTA blog, as has been exhaustively discussed here at this conference, there have been huge backlogs and wait times at TAS offices across the country. And it's been something that has really frustrated taxpayers and tax practitioners. What are you trying to do specifically to try to clear this backlog and help move cases forward uh, more efficiently and, and more quickly as well. Right, and I'm going to say frustrated TAS employees as well as mm -hmm. myself. Um, it, it's just been a hard two years. Uh, historically, I think our TAS case advocates would have anywhere from 60 to 100 open cases at one time. That was sort of a little bit of the norm back in the good old days. Um, unfortunately, during COVID, some of our folks had closer to 250 and above. And that's just not manageable. It's just very difficult. And what that resulted in, our folks were not being as responsive as we needed to be. Um, our calls, there, there was too long a period of time between we were able to reach out to taxpayers. So I can explain it. doesn't make it any better and doesn't make it any easier when you're the one waiting for the assistance. So what we have done in the last couple of years is basically moved all our resources around. We've done the all hands on deck. We've taken people who were not working cases, assigned them to cases. Um, we have brought in more people, we've changed our training model, so we have more people online. So our cases have dropped considerably. We're probably in the 100 to 150 range versus the 250 and above, so yay. But the problem is it's still a lot of cases per person. So my goal, um, and I'm kind of waiting to hear what my pro rata share of the additional monies for service, um, is I really do need to hire more case advocates. And that's what we're working with the IRS now is how many more people can we bring in and how quickly can we get them trained so that hopefully they're online by this summer. That's been my goal. And the Inflation Reduction Act, that provides for more funding for TAS as well, correct? So it, 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 blah, 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 sorry. it, it provides uh, $3.2 billion for service 
and we kind of get thrown into that service bucket. So uh, as much as I'd like the $3.2 billion all for myself, I don't think I'm going to see that. Um, but I suspect we'll get a percentage of those funds. Um, and that's to be allocated over a 10-year period. But one of the things I've been talking to the IRS about is I would like a higher percentage now because this is our our problem. You know, like every other business, eventually you have uh, folks who lead the organization. So, you know, we can always control our budget as people leave, but I need people now. So I need to get more case advocates and intakes into TAS as soon as possible. Now, with regard to funding, a lot of people here have expressed concern that the LITC grant has remained at this $100,000 max for a long time, that it's not adjusted for inflation. We know that there have been proposals, I think, to increase it to $250,000. Is this something that you have taken a position on, or are you aware of efforts to try and advance a higher grant level in Congress and what the feasibility of that would be? I know right now, as we speak, they're working on appropriations, a possible omnibus bill, but there might just be a clean continuing resolution that happens. Could you shed light on those discussions? So Taz and myself have have been advocating for some time that the 100,000 needs to be increased. Um, There are a number of folks on the Hill that are interested in this discussion, and I have seen some draft proposals. Um, But a proposal is nice. I need a law. (laughs) So um, I've seen everything from doubling the amount up to 200 all the way to the other extreme of removing the cap entirely and leaving it to the discretion at the time we propose the grants. Um, we've also proposed having it inflation adjusted if there is a cap. So I am hopeful we're further along than I've seen um, this issue before. I At this point, it's not up to me, but uh, the more any of the ones, folks that are listening, you know, call your local uh, congressional office um, and push for the issue because um, I think this is an issue that impacts taxpayers and the clinics, in my opinion, perform such a valuable benefit for taxpayers across the U.S. I'd like to see more clinics and I'd like to be able to see people be more successful, which means you too need to hire more people. And unfortunately, that takes money. And as that, that seems to be the bottom line of a lot of these things, is that that takes money and, and the need for funding. And, and it really will be interesting to see what happens now that there is this additional funding uh, that has come through the IRA. I want to uh, shift subjects here to something that a lot of people have been talking about here, uh, which is the issue of math error notices. And uh, our clients have just been inundated with math error notices about the recovery rebate credit and the child tax credit. And it has been frustrating to see that you'll get a math error notice, you'll respond to it, and then uh, it won't then be abated. Complete silence. Right, right. Or, or yeah, complete silence or... Uh, they won't trigger the deficiency procedures, even though it appears as though they should do that. Uh, so how is your office, How? what is your uh, 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 tactic here to try and uh, deal with this backlog and try and get responses out to taxpayers? So I would say we're kind of involved from the beginning to the end. One of the things we have been discussing with the IRS, uh, which they seem to be in agreement with, is just the notice in itself. It doesn't provide enough information for people to understand it. Um, you know, should you put the due date, similar to a stat notice, right on top? You know, your, your period of time, your 60 days expires on this day. So as far as I know, we are leaning towards making those changes, we being IRS, 
um, in the near future. And it gets back to money. It's an IT issue. In order for them to change the letter, they have to get in line of all the other IT projects. So there is some hope that by the next filing season, the initial letter going out will be a little bit more clear. So I have my fingers crossed on that. Um, I think last year there were about 14 million math error notices and a high percentage of those, 11, 12 million, was the rebate credit. This year it's probably a little bit fewer, but it's still in the 12, 13 million range. And again, not only do we have the rebate recovery uh, credit one, but we also have the child tax credit. But you are correct. What's happening is when you respond, it's going into that paper backlog. So as I mentioned earlier, you have four to five million correspondents sitting there. That's where your letter is sitting. It's sitting in the pile waiting to be assigned, which is a real challenge. So um, again, we got to get those customer service representatives processing those. Good news is there aren't that many returns coming in this time of year. This is kind of a little bit of a lull. And so I'm really hopeful that the IRS is going to be able to push through a lot of this um, by February, March before the next filing season. My concern is the customer service representatives are training the new 5,000 plus customer service representatives coming in, which means we took people offline who would have worked paper. So it's kind of this whole circular effect. Um, and I know it's been extremely frustrating to people that you, as you said, you respond hopefully within that 60 day window and you hear nothing or the IRS, you know, the assessment has not been reduced. So those are cases. I think you all have reached out to TAS, but again, similar to other types of things, we don't have the delegated authority to fix it. We depend on our IRS colleagues. So we can kind of bring the horse to the water, but I can't make them drink. Mm -hmm. um, so we can order them to process it, but it's up to them to get it done. And, and why aren't they following the deficiency procedures though on some of these? Like they're not sending people notices of deficiency uh, when they do send some kind of response. Yeah, that, it was yesterday was actually the first time I've heard about that, so stay tuned, because <laughs> okay. I'm gonna be making some calls. Because I can understand if they haven't processed it, but if they process the request and they disagree with you, either they should be sending it to exams for them to make, I don't, I don't want them just issuing stat notices myself, but I would like them to actually send it to an agent and consider the issue. Mm -hmm. But if the agent does not agree, yeah, you should have some finality and have an opportunity to move that case along. Speaking of backlogs, another area where we've seen a lot of backlog has to do with ID Verify. So there's this, been this ID Verification pilot program that we have taken advantage of that's helped some of our clients, but still we have clients who they responded to an ID Verify notice uh, and they still haven't gotten their refund after several months, if not years. Um, and uh, or you know it, they haven't been able to respond because the phone uh, you can't yeah. get anyone on the phone you can't get anyone on the phone to the taxpayer assistance center so you, and can't, you can't make an appointment if you can't make an appointment you can't get in that's why the, yeah. what the clinics are doing in this pilot which I think is being extended to a lot of the LITCs um, having you do that verification is huge because that that's a great way that you can help these taxpayers directly um, which will speed things up. The last numbers that I saw within the last couple weeks is there were about 2.8 million returns still sitting in that bucket of wow. needing to be verified, which is a very large number. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that is a very large number. And, and you know, one thing that 
we thought uh, would be helpful to people, and it was at least helpful for one of my clients, was that there's this online ability to verify your ID. But in the last couple of weeks, at least, it seems like it's been down for everybody. So, um, you know, hopefully by making things more accessible online, that would help, but only if the systems are working. Right. You know, we saw what happened with healthcare.gov back in 2013. Um, I mean, how, how are you, I, I guess I should ask, how are you guarding against that about, in terms of like making sure that not only are these things, every these uh, you know filing other uh, forms they're looking to make online not only that they that they can be done online but that they don't run into some of those issues that uh, other programs have run into in the past right well and that's I think it's been a mantra for years if not decades that the IRS systems um, need to be fixed they currently have about I'm probably gonna get the number wrong but about 60 standalone systems um, and when they build a tool, so for example, the Where's My Refund, it was a great tool if you didn't have a problem. So if you filed your return, you could go in, see the IRS received it, you could see maybe two, three weeks later, IRS process your return, and a check was deposited into your bank account. That's what it was intended to do. The problem was it wasn't designed to deal with the problems. And as unfortunately we were all well aware, there were a lot of people who didn't get their refunds. So when it wasn't working, it basically came back and just said, in process, in process. So it was very frustrating to folks. So as a standalone application for those taxpayers that had their refunds timely, which is a substantial portion, um, it was a great tool. But that's not what the IRS should be doing. They shouldn't be designing standalone tools. And they're well aware of this. We should have an integrated system, such as an online account, where you have everything in one place. And until they can get to that point, you're still going to have these challenges where the tools are going to get overwhelmed, they're going to have problems, because they're not designed to get you know, a couple hundred million hits at one period of time. So again, I don't think these are surprises to the IRS, but I am very hopeful, um, but it's going to take a little time, uh, that we get the, the IMF system, that's their basic uh, master file system. That's got to get changed. That's sort of the foundation of the house. Right now, um, IRS is putting pretty shutters on and nice windows. That's like your where's my refund. Mm -hmm. Those are great applications and tools, but we got to get the foundation done so the house in itself can be solid. So that is where they're going. But again, I'd like it to be tomorrow. And in terms of things being accessible, uh, that also includes, of course, language in terms of things being able to uh, be easily understood by somebody. Yeah. I feel like we've been talking about this for years and years of notices being clear. I mean, these math error notices, they don't even really tell you why. Right. They may just know. say your rebate credit was wrong for one of the six reasons below, and they'll have a laundry list. That is not helpful to a taxpayer. You know, the biggest challenge is, and, and maybe this is slightly because, the, you know, IRS is a large bureaucracy, is, you know, you have a lot of people that have input to those letters. And at the end of the day, I don't think the letter comes out looking anything close what it should be because it's a compromise with a lot of different folks. Um, so that is something the IRS is really stepping back and saying, you know, how do we have a clear language so it's written in such a way, and, and no disrespect to a lot of the taxpayers, without a bunch of tax mumbo jumbo in it. You know, we just have plain language that someone can understand who's not a tax professional. That's where we need to go with our correspondence. Is it your hope, speaking of collection notices and other kinds of notices, that in this upcoming tax filing season, 
that the IRS will again suspend collection notices for a period of time, at least during the filing season, so that they could make sure they're all up to date with the filing? As far as I know, unless you know different, they haven't unsuspended those notices. <laughs> We're still in that posture. Um, and there's been discussions within the IRS, when do they reinitiate them? Um, and there has been discussions of, do we start again now, or do we wait until we get the backlog done? Um, I suspect there's a fair amount of that four or five million correspondence that are, you know, addressing some of the correspond or the collection issues. So that's a big debate that's going on in the building now: is do we start them back up? Do we not start them? I don't know what the final answer is going to be, but they are listening and they are watching. So if they're trying to keep phone calls down and they're trying to get the paper processed, I suspect they'll be leaning towards not issuing new notices tomorrow. I guess I was thinking about how I've had clients who got CP14 notices, but that, that uh, I, I suppose would be outside the purview of the kinds of notices that were suspended. So when you say CP14, for all those listening, we're talking about the initial notice that says you owe X dollars. Mm -hmm. So that um, council has taken the position that is a statutory notice and has to be issued. So once that's issued, though, the subsequent notices should not be um, issued after that point. So that's still in place as of today. That I December think that 8th. was always in place. Okay. Because again, they were taking the position. So if you uh, hypothetically file your tax return, you reflect you owe two thousand mm dollars, but did not pay it, then you'd receive a notice that you have an outstanding balance of two thousand. But those subsequent notices that are computer generated, those would be suspended or paused. So we saw that uh, recently the IRS provided some broad penalty relief for two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty. Uh, are there other kinds of broad-based forms of relief that you uh, are pushing for uh, for at least these last couple of years where there have there has been such backlog or any kind of um, uh, relaxing of, of uh, deadlines based upon the fact that we're still in a uh, declared national emergency? Well, one of the issues that we've focused on for a period of time, um, and it's not per se related to COVID, um, but COVID has sort of emphasized the need is, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the first time abate, which is the IRS provides, and it's in the manual, um, what I would call an administrative relief, that if you are current in the last three years and haven't received, let's say, a failure to file um, penalty, they would automatically give you that penalty relief. Um, but what we've been pushing is that if you file that return late, and you haven't received the penalty in the last three years, the computer can go back and look at your last three returns. And if you haven't um, had a penalty, it would send you a letter and say, Dear taxpayer, uh, we've noticed you filed late, but we're going to allow you to have first time abate and we've abated the penalty. However, if you believe you have reasonable cause, please write to fill in the blank. And then the taxpayer would have the option to substitute out the reasonable cause. Those discussions are moving, but I still haven't gotten the IRS to agree. But I think that would be a great solution because nobody would have to write in the first time. It would just automatically, the computer would provide that first time abate to whether that be hundreds of thousands or millions of taxpayers. Um, and it would save them a lot of problems and challenges. I suspect if you received or most taxpayers received that, they wouldn't think twice and they would say, thank you, I didn't get a penalty. Um, but those who have had issues in the past, they would get the penalty and still be provided the opportunity to argue reasonable cause. So I think an automatic penalty relief where they just issue it 
and still give people an opportunity to substitute it would be very beneficial to taxpayer and for tax administration. So one thing I wanted to ask about circling back to the Inflation Reduction Act is there are certain increased or newer credits that are going to be part of this law in terms of energy efficiency, alternative energy credits. Of course, we know that the expanded ACA premium tax credit from the American Rescue Plan is still going to be in place for a few more years. What do you expect to uh, to be some of the uh, most uh, significant issues in terms of these these new provisions of the tax code or updated provisions of the tax code pursuant to the IRA? I think like every time there's any new legislation is getting guidance out as quick as possible. Um, you know, there's, there's always different ways to read sentences. So we want to know what the IRS is thinking is the correct interpretation so that on the front end we can have as many accurate returns as possible. So I think that's going to be the IRS's number one challenge is how quick can they get that guidance out the door before these credits are available and start popping up on tax returns. So that's where the IRS is focused now. I just don't, I have not been involved in that part, so I'm not sure what their time frame is. And lastly here, I wanted to ask you, in terms of this uh, upcoming calendar year, 2023, we all have New Year's resolutions where we think about New Year's resolutions. What is your number one goal, number one item that you would like to see achieved in 2023 in your job and in in terms of uh, making sure that we have a more effective tax administration? So there's kind of a joke about this. My number one would be to have more more than number one. <laughs> yeah. I don't want just one. Yeah, well, what are the top three? We uh, so if I would do the top couple, yeah. um, I would very much like to hire and train more folks so that we can help more taxpayers. I think that that is critical to TAS, is critical to tax administration. So, you know, with respect to the organization, that is one area that I would like to move forward on. Uh, with respect to taxpayers slash IRS, we just need to get this IRS current. We need to get the backlog behind us once and for all. We need to come out of this next filing season without any challenges. We need to have it at the end of the day, they're current, they get things processed. I mean, that is huge. My sort of my pet project, that sounds like a horrible way to put this, but one of my number one priorities is a online account for taxpayers. I call it the robust online account where you rival any financial institution. You can pretty much do whatever transaction, whether it be from a computer, your mobile phone, whatever, you can access your data, you can upload documents, you can download your letters, you can communicate. And just as important is the TaxPro account. Right now, it's basically a nice way to upload your POAs. I would like to have all practitioners, if you have, let's say, 100 POAs, you go into your portal one place and you can see all client data within that your tax pro account. I think that would be huge for practitioners, that if you could go in and self-help in one place uh, and be able to see a transcript, pull a transcript, um, see records, uh, see tax returns, see correspondence, uh, whatever is in the online account for the individual, it would be in the tax pro account. And then, because I always want more, I also want that for businesses. Um, they haven't gotten there yet, is right now the individual online accounts are up and running. I'd like to see more functionality, but they haven't started on the business accounts, so they need to do that as well. I think just those few things would be huge change. I think that would decrease the volume of the phone calls, which would then give people better service who need to call the IRS. And then if they can get people trained and you could have 
better IT. When you call the customer service, they can see everything at one place. Because similar to a taxpayer seeing it in their online account, IRS could see everything in one place. So the efficiency of calling a customer service representative would, would drastically improve. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Ms. Collins, and uh, I wish you all the best, and, and, and uh, I appreciate you uh, taking time out today to be with us. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. You can visit our website at taxjusticewarriors.com. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers or people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as legal advice. Consult with your tax professional if you seek specific advice. There are now three things that are certain in life, death, taxes, and your subscription to the Tax Justice Warriors podcast. Mm -hmm.